Hey folks, just a quick note before we get to the episode. Due to some technical difficulties, the audio from our guest got recorded from his laptop speaker and not his microphone. This results in some obvious audio quality issues for which we apologize. The information is still good, which is why we cleaned it up as best as possible. So please enjoy. Hello and welcome to Core Sampler, the podcast where we drill into the Sitecore community to bring you insights into the work talented people are doing every day on the Sitecore experience platform. Whether you're a developer, a marketer, or both, we're glad you're here. And now your host, Derek Dysart. Welcome to Core Sampler. My name is Derek Dysart, and in this episode, we're talking with Jason Burt. Jason is a independent Sitecore architect uh, based out of the UK uh, in uh, in Kent, which is uh, about a, what about a thirty minute train ride from uh, from London. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. You are uh, you know you've been around the Sitecore platform for a while, but I think one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show, and this is why I reached out to you, is we've talked with. People that are in charge of or or released other kind of libraries out there that are in in quite wide use for Sitecore. We've talked with Mike Edwards uh, talking about Glass Mapper. I, I we had we had Cam Figgy on a number of episodes ago talking about both Unicorn and Rainbow, but uh, as well as his Synthesis framework. And uh, you have a, a, a you know I don't know if you'd call it competing, but a complementary or a, an alternative framework called Fortis. Um, why don't you tell me a, a little bit? about what exactly Fortis is and uh, kind of where where it fits into the development life cycle if you're developing on the Sitecore platform. Sure. Well, uh, Fortis is, I would say, an alternative to the, uh, the mainstream, which would be Glass. Um, I'm fortunate enough, actually, to work with Mike at the moment. <laughs> and so uh, we often have uh, joking discussions about our frameworks. And it's often a case of, uh, it's okay if Glass goes down, Fortis can take over. <laughs> um, but Fortis was uh, a framework that actually, um, I worked together with Kern Herskind, Nightingale, on a uh-huh. project years ago. Um, and this was kind of where the framework was born from. And we had the idea that uh, we would like to have this strongly typed uh, object system because of the fact that Sitecore has this loosely uh, magic string approach of rendering fields and pulling out items. And we wanted to have a, a more robust way of managing and accessing all of our items. And so... Uh, we went about building our own system and actually just wrapping the API. So if you looked at something like Glass, that just kind of maps your information to your classes, whereas our approach was more to do with wrapping classes around the Sitecore item so that you can make them testable and get sort of nice IntelliSense. Uh-huh. So that's where it was kind of born out of. We kind of we never actually intended it to be a framework uh, funny enough, that was used by anyone. Uh, it was more that we had a need on a project and we built it from the ground up in a, in a quite a different guise to what it sort of looks like now. Uh, and then I made the decision to take what we'd done and actually build a proper framework, and that's what became Fortis. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's kind of the, the history of where it grew, where it was uh, born from, and this is a good two or three years ago, I'd say now at least, and then from there, it, uh, we just started using it internally when I was working at Lightmaker um, because it, it worked on one project and we thought, well, let's use it more and other people would like it. 
Uh, we just continued iterating over it. I did some presentations on it a while ago, and this I think this is back when using these kind of frameworks was still not sort of a go-to thing. Yeah, it was definitely like I know early on. I mean, I, I the first couple of projects I worked on, we were we were still kind of doing the magic string kind of thing where you'd request, uh, you know, and I guess when we we talk about that, the 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 name of the field is hard coded in your in your code. So if you want the, you know, if you've got a subheading field that you want to render out, you request that field by name of quote subhead unquote. And so I know, uh, you know, I, I think one of the first, uh, and I think I've, I've discussed this before. One of the first frameworks I worked with was, um, custom item generator that came out of Valir. And that was not so much a framework, but a code generation tool that, um, would generate these strongly typed classes. So that, that was, that was really early on. I guess I wasn't exposed to anything later on until, uh, ultimately we kind of stumbled upon glass, uh, in its early days. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I think this was the, back then this was the problem, uh, that needed to be solved. And it, even now I would say there's still a lot of development that goes on that's not using these kind of frameworks. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they're, I would say they're a must-have. Whether you know whether you use Fortis or Glass, it's down to preference. I'd say Glass has been because Glass has been there first and been there longest, and it is good and it's ex- excellent what it does. Uh, it, it's become a very good mainstay. I, ironically, I use it myself <laughs> as well in projects where I because being a contractor, I can't just go to places and say, hey, use Fortis. But it's actually good because I get to use both of them. I get to understand them all. Um, uh-huh. And actually wor- working with Mike is great as well because he's an excellent architect and developer. Um, and we often chat about things regarding frameworks and you know how do you approach this or we do this. And actually we're right in the process now of rebuilding Fortis because uh-huh. it's it's got a bit of legacy to it at the moment because it was built back on top of cycle six five okay and then when things like cycle seven came along with the new search system we had to, we sort of built on top and added in extra functionality and it's just become i would say probably this this is back when ioc and dependency injection was a kind of to most developers what's that i've never heard of it right it's right. not this isn't something i do um, because when we did this project and started to build Fortis, we we were using we started to use dependency injection um, to get away from or to abstract our functionality away. And this it was still infant, I would say, even mm-hmm. though that um, paradigm has been around a long time. A lot of developers, especially in the web world, just didn't do it, and so you had a lot of static methods and classes that you would use, and so. With things moving along with like .NET Core, we just want to bring the framework up in the technology stature so that we're simplifying and being a bit more in line with where the industry is going, which is sort of small, granular dependencies that you inject into your code and that are easily maintainable and manageable. Uh And in some ways, the the take-up on Fortis, because it's a lot slower than Glass, has it does allow us to make this rebuild without impacting so many people. Sure. But I think in the long run, it's going to be good because uh, when we launch it, hopefully early next year, I'd like to try and uh, get some people on board and maybe try it out. I know it's being used in production sites 
in other agencies, which is good to know. So we, I think we've got a good base to work on. Um, so yeah, yeah, and I'm browsing, you know, kind of browsing the the, the site for the project, which is uh, Fortis.ws. Um, and links to that will be in the show notes at coresampler.fm. Um, it, 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 you, you guys kind of advertise it as uh, the, the Fortis collection. It's, it's more than just the kind of strong typing system. There are other, the, there are other portions to it. And this is, this was actually where I found out a lot about, uh, or I guess got exposed to it was, you guys also have a couple other uh, a couple other kind of portions beyond the the strong typing system. Why don't you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> originally we started with the framework, but then what I sort of envisioned is to have a, a collection of u- frameworks and utilities, effectively, and which was where Fortis collections came from. And we we split up the notion of the framework for doing the strongly typed. We then sort of abstracted out into some tools for doing code generation um, because one of the the things we hear is that some places don't use TDS, uh, some places use Unicorn, uh, other places just do their own thing. So we have things like tools for reading in a set of serialized items mm-hmm. and then produce it and loading those into code so that you can then and produce your own class system, if you like, independent of any other framework. We've also got tools in there for things like continuous delivery and integration. Some of the things where I've come across sort of, I guess, problems that have needed to be solved, um, things like triggering off publishing when you're doing a deployment. Just to kind of rewind a little bit, um, you know, looking at, uh, we've had, we, we've talked about uh, Unicorn and TDS on the podcast and kind of in passing, I think there might be an assumption to it, but those are those are both ways to take data that is stored in Sitecore. So it's, you know, Sitecore backends with SQL Server, all of the content data is in SQL Server, but um, it, this is a way to serialize that to a text format, a, a format that can be stored on the file system, checked into a source control system and versioned. And that's because a lot of the data within Sitecore is actually a, um, you know, a, it's almost a development artifact. Uh, the, the templates that get defined in Sitecore, uh, the code art is, is dependent on those fields being there. So there, there are two frameworks, um, that, uh, are in wide use now, I would, I would argue for taking those development artifacts that are stored in the SQL Server backend database and, and serializing them to disk. Yeah, you're right. You've got TDS and Unicorn, which are probably the main ones um, uh-huh. out there. And for sort of Fortis, we can support either because we can either use TDS and it's got its own code generation in there. Or to support Unicorn, uh, we've got something called um, Transitus, which is the bit that I was talking about where... Uh, it can take that set of serialized files, say from Unicorn, and then uh, using T4 templates, you could then generate your uh, code files and code classes. Me personally, I use TDS uh, because uh, I like the UI inside Visual Studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know uh, Richard Seal, who also works with me on Fortis. I think he quite likes Unicorn, um, and I believe he uses that. So I, I think it comes down to your team and maybe even business needs to a degree. Definitely. Uh, perhaps, perhaps for smaller agencies, Unicorn is a fantastic option because it's open source and free. Uh, and 
absolutely allows you to do that that crucial thing of serializing and uh, version controlling your sidecar items, which I would say again, it's a bit like the uh, frameworks. In the, it's only in the last couple of years where I would say it's really started to pick up and it's become a, a norm and a go-to. Um, so I, I would say any kind of agency or, or partner or client that's not using it really should think about investing some time and money into doing this because in the long run, it'll save you money. There is always that, I, I hear the argument about TDS as, oh, it's, it's expensive per license. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. It, it can be expensive when you just look at that per license figure. But actually, when you look at the amount of time your developers save, uh, it becomes an investment that will return you back money because you, you'll be cutting down development time and making your systems and processes much more robust. Um, the same goes for Unicorn as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and I've, there was probably at least more than one user group that I've been at where, you know, we've, we, we got questions from the audience on, you know, what, you know, what if my... What if my company won't buy me TDS? And and I looked at it. And it's like it, it 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 isn't an inexpensive tool, but neither is you know a lot of the stuff that we work with. And that if you look at it over the amount of time that you'll save with it, you know that there there is definitely you know uh, definitely a savings to be have. But you know with with kind of the the rise and adoption of unicorn uh at least for a lot of agencies there is you know if if, if they're not willing to invest in that sort of tooling, which they all have their own you know, reasoning behind that, that is definitely a viable option is to use, to, to use unicorn. And I look at, you know, something like, like habitat, um, Sycor's own kind of reference implementation of their helix principles their that their, you know, their latest version uses unicorn. They, they use unicorn for serialization. Um, they have the luxury of since habitat is, is meant to be a demo site, they serialize all of the content as well. Um, and so when you, you know, if you go through and, and actually try and stand up a habitat site, all of the, the data, not just the templates and renderings, but actually all of the content on the site comes is, is serialized via unicorn and is actually in the repository, uh, so that you can actually stand up the site, uh, just by cloning the repository. Yeah, definitely. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting point that you make about the, the fact that they serialize all their content in there, because that's certainly one of the, um, the challenges when using serialization of items is what do you put into your repository and what don't you? Uh-huh. And then when you come to actually uh, deploying all your changes, it can be a, a tricky thing to handle, especially when you're working with something like, I don't know, a good example with TDS is when I need to make changes in part of the tree and my content editors have put their own items in, uh, I don't want to sort of manipulate and remove what they've done, but I need to push my changes in already. And so that, that is actually one of the sort of challenges in the, the CI/CD process where uh, you have to work out what is best for your sort of process, I guess. And, and so I guess, I mean, since you've kind of mentioned it a couple of times, uh, you know, if we, we back up a little bit, see when we, when we mentioned CI/CD, we're referring to continuous integration, continuous deployment. So this is the concept of we're always building uh, you know, on, on every commit or every check-in to our repository, we're, we're building, uh, we're building the code base, making sure that it still compiles, uh, running other checks against that may that, you know, that could be unit testing. That could be, um, 
looking at code quality. And then the continuous deployment is actually being able to automatically deploy that to some testing environment. And that was another reason why I wanted to kind of chat with you is uh, on my radar, you were one of the first people kind of talking publicly, um, not so much talking publicly about like, hey, we should be doing CICD. That's been a that's been a concept that it's been around for a while, but it's always been a challenge with the code that we're building is is running alongside an existing product. So how do we, you know, deploy, uh, how do we continuously deploy our code to what is effectively a fixed code base with the the base Sitecore install? Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about some of the, you know, some of the, the, the path that has gotten you to where you are today, uh, in dealing with continuous integration, continuous delivery with, with Sitecore. Sure. So a good couple of years ago, uh, I had the, had the desire to have our environments automatically updated every time we checked in code or committed in code. And it, because up until that point, it was a case of a, a very brittle method where I was working. And it was a case of we've got our folders and we can copy our files across to the different uh, environments. But that was a very manual procedure. So I, I sort of said about looking at the different tools available, uh, allowing us to, from the point of version source control to deployment on the environments. And I, I looked at various different pieces of software. So one of the most critical pieces was the build server, various products like Team City, which is probably one of the most popular. Mm-hmm. But you've also got other ones, uh, I think Bamboo, which I believe is Alassian's yep, option. Yep. And oh, I, can't, I can't remember the other ones. Well, there's the, the open source. The, the, the one that's really popular in the open source community is Jenkins. It's an open, that's uh, the one. An open platform. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing, even though Team City, you in a larger organization, you have to pay for it. The nice thing is it, is, it can be a one-time license. So it's only if you need the support. But out of all the ones I sort of tested out, I found Team City was the most flexible and the most mature product. It has so much configuration in there. And so I decided to use that as my build server for reading from version control and actually compiling and doing all the checks. And I also wanted to have some uh, code checking in there because one of the things I think a lot of lead developers and especially want is robust and clean code being checked into the repository. And so I looked into things like uh, SonarCube, which uh-huh. is a code analysis tool. Yep. And that's a great way of plugging in SonarCube into your build process to, uh, and it runs rules like FXCOP, uh, StyleCOP, uh, amongst, and also your own rules you can create as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so for folks that might not be a val- uh, you know, they might not be aware of what, what that code analysis is. What, what is that product kind of doing? What is it, what is it looking for? What are some, uh, you know, some, some examples? Uh, okay. So, I mean, some simple like syntax, uh, examples would be if you've said in your development team, uh, for your private variables, you must prefix them with an underscore. Uh, that that's a, probably an easy one to understand. And so if someone checks in some code and they've got a private variable in there, it's not got the underscore. It, the build server detects the changes, runs it starts running its process. Part of that is I'm going to send my code off to SonarCube. It's going to look through all the code files and analyze them for you. 
and then it's going to find this code file and go, hang on, that's broken the rule. Uh, and so I'm going to return back to Team City and say, no, sorry, this build fails because you've broken the rule. Even though the whole thing will compile and will run and mm-hmm. you'll be able to deploy it, it's kind of there to help as a team keep a consistent code base. So that's that's sort of one one kind of element in the idea of failing fast, which is what you want to do in in this process. The idea that even though you never want to fail, you would if you're going to fail, you want to fail as soon as possible before you ever get to your production environment. So that you know the first step of that is when you actually build it on your local machine. Then the the CI server, uh, which is the next step. So it's doing the build for you because it's pulling in all the people's changes. Mm-hmm. And then further to that, the code analysis. So that that I hope that's an example there of how code analysis could help. Um, I, I find a not a lot of places do that one. Yeah, I don't, I don't run into it as much as either. You know, I, I I think the the extent of their code analysis is maybe they have a product like ReSharper, and ReSharper kind of have has its own kind of continuous code analysis within your um, within your code editor. So it might you know it might kind of squawk at you like, hey, this is inconsistent with your normal variable naming, or you know maybe you can invert this if statement to reduce nesting and so forth. You know, some folks might be. Uh, familiar with three sharper, but I, I, I don't think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of organizations out there running, uh, a, a tool like sonar cube, which, you know, is reliant on technology that's been there a long time. I think FX cop has been around since uh, almost yeah, yeah. Donna dot net, um, yep. of, of doing that analysis of, you know, is it, it, my understanding you can go as nitpicky as you can get into the religious argument of where do you put your curly braces around an if statement? Um, you know, do you put them on the same line? Do you put them on, how do you do the indentation? Uh, you can have a check for that sort of stuff if you're trying to enforce, coding standards um and and you're getting the benefit as you mentioned it's done automatically um so exactly prior you had your your developers saying like hey you should you know make sure you're adhering to our coding standards this you're you're enforcing it in an automatic basis so you don't have you know it's always done and i think that's that's another kind of key part of continuous integration um is that uh you mentioned failing fast if somebody checks in some code that is that's bad that doesn't compile or as you mentioned it it compiles but it doesn't really adhere to standards and we may run into maintenance issues down the road um you you flag that early enough where it can be fixed um you know semi-immediately and then um and then moving you know being able to move on yes so i i definitely agree with that and actually in the newer versions of Visual Studio, I, I would still consider it as part of this whole process of continuous integration because the, the continuous integration and deployment doesn't just start and end at the point of version control. Mm-hmm. To me, it also actually starts at the point of the developer's local machine. You, like, again, going back to that whole idea of failing fast, realistically, you'd like all of your checks to be done before code is ever committed. And actually, in the new versions of Visual Studio, you can run. So we mentioned FXCOP before. Mm-hmm. You can create and run your own code rules inside Visual Studio on build. And we, in where I'm currently at at the moment, I was doing some research into looking at perhaps restricting people's ability. Uh, because there are so many developers 
and so many teams. I mean, we're talking over 50 developers. Uh-huh. We had an incident where someone did something in a pipe in the HTTP request pipeline, and it brought down the site. Now, no amount of compiling or, well, some in- integration and acceptance testing should pick that up, really. Uh-huh. But uh, we sort of thought, well... How about we try and restrict people's ability to use the default cycle pipeline classes directly so that we put in like an intermediary class, which has some has some fail safe mechanisms in there so that if a developer did commit and manage to get through to production a bad pipeline step, mm-hmm. it's not going to bring the whole place down. And so uh, I, I actually was able to write a rule. Uh, in C-sharp code as well, and they, these get compiled into a binary. And then any time I built my solution, if I had a class that directly inherited from the HTTP request begin pipeline class, mm-hmm. um, my build would fail. And you could also run that in the CI server using SonarCube. So you could you can start enforcing not just how things visually look in the code to, so that they're standardized, but also enforcing some checks and balances in there in potentially dangerous areas of your site. So I think that's that's an area which probably hasn't been exploited very much at the moment and is something that I'm looking into. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept because I think if, if, if folks aren't as completely familiar with, with, with Sitecore, the, the HTTP begin request pipeline gets run for every single request that comes into the site. And it's a common area that uh, that gets extended to do uh, you know, functionality, whether it's, you know, adding your own security checks in or, or, or doing some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of work before the actual page is, uh, is built. But since it runs for every single request, if, if that, if you inject a, a pipeline step in there that takes a long time, your site's going to get really slow. I've seen, you know, I, I came in on a project and they were having a lot of issues where, you know, their, their average page load time was like two seconds or something. And we, uh, we ultimately found some bad code in a, in a pipeline step that was, you know, walking through a really big part of the Sitecore tree by removing that and kind of refactoring that code. So it was a lot more efficient. It's a, it's a common area. If, if you're, if you're new to Sitecore, it might seem like, Hey, that's the, that's the, easiest part to, to plug in this this functionality that I need to occur on every page. But you have to be really careful because you, you can, like as you mentioned, just kill the site's performance. Yeah, so it, yeah, it's interesting because you, you talk about performance. And actually, that's potentially one of the other big areas where the CICD process will help. You can put all these kind of rules and checks in place, but ultimately people can still commit code that will get through and do, like you say, have a massive performance hit. And so this is where you want to be able to automate perhaps load testing. Mm-hmm. And so part of your process would be to, say, use TeamCity, does all its builds, uh, packages it up into something like a NuGet package, mm-hmm. which would contain, uh, in my cases, I would normally have a NuGet package, which has the code files, and a NuGet package that has the sitecore items. And so you deploy the sitecore items using... I've actually made a tool in the Fortis collections for deploying and installing Sitecore update packages, and it also gives you back a, a percentage as to how far into the install it's finished. And so in your 
sort of deployment software, for example, Octopus Deploy, uh-huh. you'll get feedback in there to say, okay, it's 100% complete. And then you deploy the code files. And then if you do that on, say, something like a, a staging environment, you can then use some, uh, spin up some, something, I don't know, JMeter perhaps, automatically spin up some load testing software to then hammer your site and try and find anything like these processes that people have written and you suddenly go, whoa, the homepage is taking 10 seconds to load once we get up to 10 users. That's not good. And so it it, it always comes back to this failing fast and failing before you ever get to production. But I kind of go, going, beginning back to, uh, you know, I kind of want to kind of close the loop on, on CI and CD. Uh, I think the overarching framework that people need to take with that is try and automate as much as possible. You know, the, a, a lot of what you do in Sitecore, like you said, publishing or installing packages, being able to automate that not only has the benefit, as you said, of, of kind of failing fast, but now your production deploys take a lot less time or there's a lot, they're a lot less labor intensive. And I know maybe if you can talk just briefly about something like Octopus Deploy, where you're, you're essentially deploying the same code that you deployed to QA. Now you're going to deploy that to production and testing hopefully is, is, you, you've shaken out all those issues. Yeah, definitely. I think the one thing I would say to developers and team leads and architects is setting up CI/CD it is not a mammoth task in at the start because I've written a couple of blog posts on it. And even if you followed the, the latest blog post that I've written on it, in a couple of days, I think you could easily ha- be set up without paying for any tools as well set up at least doing CI to your development environment. You don't have to do everything at once. Mm -hmm. Just start putting in building blocks and just start building it up. So, you know, you start with, okay, I'm going to at least try and improve the robustness between developer commit and deploying to our development environment. And at least then that being automated, that immediately starts eliminating um, sort of areas of problems and builds failing because c- developers are committing bad code and you're just deploying those files straight out without knowing what's going on. And then once you've got that sorted, then look at, okay, well, we've probably got a, a staging or acceptance environment. How do we now pull that into our system? And you just kind of keep expanding. And, you know, there's no need to sort of do everything at once, mm-hmm. but at least if you can start doing the improvements and then even if you have to sell it to your to the business or where you're working, you can sort of say to them, hey, it's going to cost X hours to set this up, but it's going to save us X times 10 hours in the long run Definitely. of development time. And I think that's the way you, you just sort of sell it. And I, I think testing is one of these sort of uh, boogeyman things that where – Businesses go, but testing doesn't make anything. Testing doesn't make money. It just costs money. Right, right. But actually, testing, even if it's manual testing, will save you money in the long run. And I think this is where business just doesn't doesn't really grasp it because they see it as an expense and as an expense in time that just, in theory, doesn't do anything because they tend to think – well, the developer should be committing code that's already all good and ready to go. Right, right. We hire we hired really good developers. Well, we shouldn't need to test yeah. their code. And I think I, uh, every developer out there knows that that's not always the case. In fact, I know, you know, personally, if if I 
write something and it gets sent to QA and they don't find any bugs, I'm I'm a little worried that it didn't get tested enough. Of like, <laughs> just you know that it you know you want to you know you want to hope that they find found something because then they you know hopefully covered everything. So it's uh yeah it's it's definitely communicating the value. I think as you said, start small, take baby steps towards getting uh, getting an automated process in, in place, and it definitely pays dividends down the road. Uh, I know I've seen it pay dividends just on looking beyond code quality of just you know my my life was always a a a nightmare of deploying to production it was always a massive undertaking it was you know making sure databases are backed up making sure the website was backed up making sure all this stuff was backed up and then deploying the code and smoke testing and all that um and then dig it so far and an hour and a half into the progress and 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 realize you know somebody had checked in a whole new uh, folder full of templates that you know we didn't include in our package. So having that automated, I, I I can say that you know for for a team lead that will save you a ton of headaches. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we're kind of c- coming up on time, Jason. I want to uh, just on behalf of all the listeners out there, thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, to join us here. Where can folks find out more about you online and kind of read? M- both about Fortis and about some of the work you've done around CI and CD. Yeah, so there's there's two places. There's Fortis.ws, and then there's also GoblinRockets.com, which is my sort of personal site, and that's where I actually do my blogs and stuff. So the CI CD blog posts are on there, and you can find out stuff about Fortis on the website. There's also the Hash Fortis Slack channel. Uh, if you're Thanks on for there, joining us for this I'm, episode I'm of Core Sampler. Twitter, to see show Jason notes from this Bert. and past awesome, episodes, awesome. please visit um, yeah. Core Thank you again for joining us on Core Sampler. Uh, there, we'll get you can links also to all those and more in the show notes, which you can find at CoreSampler.fm. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Please tell a friend, and then go to iTunes to rate and comment on our show. Even if you're using a different app to listen to us, those ratings and reviews really do help others find us. Are you a professional working with Sitecore and interested in joining the show? Or would you like to leave some feedback directly? We want to hear from you. Drop us a line at info at coresampler.fm. That is all for this episode of Core Sampler. We'll see you next time.